Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Okay, today on the show, I welcome Marie Forleo. Jersey-born and raised, Marie is an entrepreneur, New York Times best-selling author, the host of Marie TV, and the creator of B-School, an online business school program which has helped tens of thousands of people achieve their business dreams. In fact, if you sign up for Marie's B-School through Commune, you'll get a free year of Commune membership. Just visit onecommune.com slash Marie for more info. So Marie came on the show last year to celebrate her book, Everything is Figureoutable, and she is back again to discuss the keys to building a fulfilling and independent life and career. So our conversation focuses on three principal areas, developing clarity and purpose, cultivating courage and confidence, and maximizing productivity, streamlining where we put our time and attention moment to moment. Marie and I take a few off-ramps along the way. You could call them snack breaks to talk about the definition of courage, to explore whether bigger is actually better, and to talk about meditation. I wasn't aware prior to this chat that Marie was a daily meditator. So as you know, I could hover there for some time, and we do. And Marie always brings great energy to everything she does, and this conversation is no exception. So I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Marie Forleo. Ah, uh, Marie Forleo, great to be with you. Oh, it's so good to be with you, and I've missed you so much. It's been too long. So I have a, a lot of questions, a lot to excavate and probe from your brilliant brain. Um, but uh, before we jump in, I do want to share the quickest of stories um, from this morning, because as I mentioned, I have been, um, I have been 
planted in my daughter's bedroom um, and uh, temporarily because my studio is being built out. So uh, my daughter, Lolly, who lollipop ice cream, my middle daughter, um, this morning, she asked me, well, I know you have a podcast today, but like, who is it with? And I'm like, well, you know, it's with this friend of mine, uh, Marie Forleo. And she's like, well, who is Marie Forleo? And uh, of course, I said to her, like, what have you been living under a damp, mossy <laughs> rock somewhere? Um, so Lolly is a dancer. She is a great student. She's a really great artist. She's interested in psychology. She's interested in neuroscience. Um, so I said to her, well, if I have to distill Marie into like two or three words, which is, which is patently unfair, I would call her, I think I used the words, effusive, empowering entrepreneur, because I only had three mm -hmm. words. Um, but I said, but if I had a paragraph, which is more appropriate, I would actually say Marie is a lot like you, Lolly. Mm. And um, she's super diverse. And I would have a different answer for who is Marie, depending on the context, because I know her to be a great dancer, a superlative writer, a fantastic efflorescent business person, but she's also passionate about psychology and fitness and spirituality and, and philanthropy. So I know Lolly often worries about, about not being the greatest at one thing, but you have managed to alchemize all of your myriad passions and interests into a very unique identity and brand. So yes. I want to ask you, like, how did you do that? And how would you advise budding creatives like Lolly, who have a lot of diverse passions in their life? It's such a great question. And I'll tell you, I certainly did not figure it out in any linear fashion. And for many, many years, especially when I was in my early 20s and just trying so hard to figure out my place in the world, and I was reading all of the success books, I was reading the kind of classic career guides, like what color is your parachute and all of those different things. Because I think our society as it is right now, from what I've experienced, doesn't do a wonderful job at preparing young people to identify their strengths and their interests, and then build a bridge to what could be a livelihood, whether mm -hmm. it's a career, an entrepreneurial um, path, or any combination thereof, right? It just feels like it's like, oh. And when I was a kid, people would say, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I always had 17 answers. And those answers would kind of shift and change from like fifth grade to eighth grade to 11th grade. And so I remember feeling really quite broken and I questioned Jeff, honestly, when I think I was in my mid-20s, whether I had some kind of cognitive deficiency because I was extremely passionate, really wanted to work hard. I have a very strong work ethic, was committed to figuring out how to contribute to society, but I kept wanting to quit all the great jobs I had. So it was, there was this <laughs> cognitive dissonance of like, what's wrong with me? Eventually I did get an ADHD diagnosis. I don't like to live by labels, but it helped to at least explain some of the differences in my brain that I didn't notice in my friends or my colleagues or my peers. 
And I remember journaling around that time. And it would be like, you know, I was raised Catholic and I had gone to a Catholic university, Seton Hall University. And so I was kind of trained at that point that when you hit some walls, you look up and you ask for some guidance. So in in my framework at that time, I would journal and like do these kind of angry pleased to God, like, what's wrong with me? Like, can you just help me figure out what I'm supposed to be in my life? I knew I had this passion for coaching and psychology and spirituality. And I was also, you know, I had spent some time on Wall Street. So I was into finance and business and building things. But I was also super passionate about dance, even though I'd never had any dance training. I just like threw myself into it wholeheartedly and and built a career eventually in that as well. And I think it was out of so much frustration and angst and crying and maybe those journaling entries to God in in my notebook that I was gifted this phrase that appeared in my mental theater and it honestly changed everything. And that phrase was this, multi-passionate entrepreneur. I remember when I was, uh, you know, bartending during um, the evenings and the weekends to kind of basically bankroll my very baby coaching business. And people would always ask me like, oh, well, what else do you do besides bartending? Are you an actress? You must be an actress. And I never had one good answer. But then when this phrase multi-passion entrepreneur popped in my mind, I remember one day just saying it without even thinking about it. I said, oh, I'm a multi-passion entrepreneur, like very confidently. And the person would, they didn't know what that meant, but they were intrigued enough to say, oh, what does that mean? And then it allowed me to unfold into the different areas that I was not only exploring, but also working in at that time, which included um, dance and fitness. It included my life coaching practice. It included um, the very baby world. We're taking it back now, 2002, 2003, which the online marketing world was, you know, in its infancy. So I got to talk about all of my passions in a way that set a new context for how I saw myself. And in that new context, I found a confidence I didn't know was possible because I no longer was trying to fit myself into this narrowly confining and limited societally approved idea of the one thing I was striving to be. And it gave me a broader context through which I could talk about the fullness of who I was without feeling like I was broken or wrong for having so many diverse interests. Mm, Yeah. It's it's so interesting. And I'll just speak to my subjective experience of you, um, where, you know, when I view a piece of your content, I would know that it was yours immediately without your name or even just the image of your beautiful face uh, flashing across the screen because you have really created something super unique. I mean, when you talk about writing and you're a resplendent writer, you're also bringing in your passion for psychology into your writing as it pertains to being an entrepreneur. So you're combining all of these interests and passions and things that you've built up in a way that's really practical. And then you might stick like a couple of dudes in gold lamey underwear dancing (laughs) (laughs) from time to time in the middle of it to keep it fun and upbeat and optimistic, but something that is so uniquely you. So you've managed to leverage all of these passions in a way to actually create something that would be more unique than if you hadn't otherwise had them, which is just 
it's so it's so great and uh and i really i guess i would encourage people to look at you as a model there to to say that hey having all of these different kinds of interests is really what sets you apart from everybody else Yes. And to build off that, Jeff, I think one of the things I discovered, again, painfully, because when I first started as a life coach, by the way, I was 23. I was rolling my eyes at myself. The logical part Mm -hmm. of my brain is like, you're 23. You're like piles and piles and piles. You've got so much debt out the wazoo after college. You can't even hold down a job because you keep quitting. Like you don't even know anything about life. Like this is insane. So I had that voice going and then I had the inner soul, which was like, no, this is your path. Like you need to keep pursuing this. And I say that because when I first started, I tried to be my idea a child's idea of what a professional business woman would be. And that idea was somehow a compilation of uh, shoulder pads, you know what (laughs) I mean? Very buttoned up, tried to sound more like educated. You know, I'm the first in my family to go to college, so we we don't really have a pedigree, you know what I mean? Uh, Like that. And when I tried to speak perfectly professionally and tried to kind of embody this persona, I failed miserably, Jeff. And it was Mm. only out of trying to do it that way. And then I couldn't do it. My self-expression was completely suppressed. There was no creativity. There was no flow. And when I finally said, screw it, I'm just going to be the weird Jersey girl who has this strange notion of how to bring concepts to life. It's goofy. It's quirky. There's a lot of blending of a lot of different things. When I gave myself permission to just be me, not ironically now in retrospect, people responded. My creativity was starting to flow. People were like, wow, you're really, oh my gosh, I get this. I'm getting the benefit. Tell me more. So there was all of this feedback, both internally from my own experience, but externally from the outside world that, oh, I don't have to be something different. And then you start stacking that over the years. You know, when I started, there weren't many coaches out there and now it's a very big industry, which is amazing. But I say that, so for everyone listening, It's important that if you have all of these quirks and different things that you're into and you especially think you need to hide them or they're not professional or you're not going to be accepted or taken seriously if you don't fit a particular mold that you've seen out there before, that's actually a great green light signal to go and be you because it has become a competitive advantage for us and not in any way that puts anyone else down, but to your point, it becomes uniquely identifiable like, oh, I feel that, that's Marie. And over time, people get accustomed to, oh, we can actually have fun and learn. We can talk about neuroscience and psychology. We can blend all of these different things and still be goofy and laugh and actually get ourselves results. So um, thank you for highlighting that. And I just want to encourage people, we need you to bring all of yourself to the table. You know, all of the things that make you you your unique story, your perspective, your gifts, your talents, the things that you don't even think people might care about, they actually will. Yeah. Don't try to fit into some mold. Just really cultivate what is authentic to yourself. And uh, that's a great message. And honestly, you're just living that message as an exemplar. So I've thought about a couple different themes to talk about today. Um, And the first hovers around clarity and purpose. So here we are almost 
two years into COVID, we've anchored into various lockdowns, et cetera. And in many ways, um, it's been a time of extreme unpredictability and uncertainty and certainly a lot of fear. Um, but at the same time, this period of what I sometimes call forced monasticism um, has given many people, not all people, but many people the opportunity to really take personal inventory, to reprioritize, to get clear and to live with more purpose. Yes. Um, so you're an expert among experts of helping people get clear, but has this time provided you personally with any revelations or clarity in your life? Huge. Probably some of the biggest of my entire life and of course my career. I mm. think that honestly, um, from my childhood, and I think many of us are like this, you know, when you don't come from a lot and you grow up with a family that has an extremely strong work ethic, right? Where it's like you do anything that you need to do to keep the roof over your head and food on the table and to keep it all going. That's my background. And I was just so used to working, quite honestly, Jeff, 24 7, seven days a week. And mm. As I've gotten into my adulthood, I was starting to get a little better. Like, you know, for the past probably six, seven years, I've taken a couple weeks of vacation, which I know that that sounds kind of silly to some people, but it was a big move for me because it was just not my reality for so long. And I think when COVID hit and there were so many disruptions, and I don't think I recognized how much static was in my consciousness all the time. Even though I had gotten tactically good at saying no to things that weren't necessarily aligned or not the best use of my time based on my vision and goals and my lifestyle and all those things, I didn't recognize how deeply all of that static of what I could go to, say yes to this speaking engagement, should you be here, should you be there, even if I wasn't doing it, it was still existing. Kind of like if you've got the air conditioner on in the summertime and there's this loud hum and you don't even realize what silence is until everything shuts down. That's mm. how it felt for me. So that was one piece of clarity was realizing how much more simplicity I crave, how much more time off of technology that my soul and body requires I don't think I would have recognized because I wasn't aware of it. It wasn't conscious how much of my life I was living in a chronic sense of wanting to control everything, wanting to predict every outcome, wanting to plan so far ahead for every possible contingency so that I would be safe, my team would be, you know what I mean? Like mm, it's hypervigilance. Yeah. And that hypervigilance, I didn't realize was destroying me from the inside out, was creating a level of stress and drenching my body in so much cortisol that had become so normalized to me that unless everything stopped, there would be no way that I would have recognized it. 
And it all came to a head when at the end of 2020, it was kind of near the fall, um, I was having some like stomach pain that was odd for me. You know, I'm one of those humans, not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but generally speaking, I take good care of myself as a dancer, you know, as someone who moves a lot, as someone who not only knows the benefit of meditation, but has been practicing it for years. And again, not perfect by any stretch, but it's, these things are a part of my life. I'm like, gosh, how am I doing all the right things, like checking all of the right boxes? And yet my body was starting to break down. And we um, had this pain in my stomach, discovered these uh, like grapefruit-sized tumor growing outside of my uterus. Turns out I had to have an urgent hysterectomy. It was just like this cascade of things that I went through at the end of 2020. So I'm getting to uh, an answer about you know clarity and purpose and what came through for me. After that surgery happened, which was successful, by the way, uh, the recovery was six weeks of doing nothing. I'd never done that in my life, Jeff. I had never done that in my life. And, you know, my team was like, we've got this. And we were like, okay, we got this. Yeah. But it was after that six weeks that I really started to see so many of my own patterns that were so destructive that I just didn't even realize, you know, because I've been doing this for 20 years and just going and going. And I thought I was doing a good job at self-care. I thought I was not living in a state of, you know, cortisol stress all the time, but that wasn't the truth. It wasn't the truth. And if so many things didn't quite stop, if some challenges didn't happen, I would have never got those lessons. And I feel now like I'm in such a new place and, um, and I can see the difference of where I was and have so much gratitude and appreciation for the woman that I've been for the past couple decades, but also so much space, like spaciousness and perspective of where I want to go in the decades ahead. Mm. Wow. Well, first of all, I'm happy that you're healthy and well. Yeah. I'm sorry that, that you had to go through that, though I, I suppose sometimes these obstacles and challenges in life end up being our greatest teachers, right? The best gift ever. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It was, you know, obviously for anyone and most, I think most folks that we know, or certainly a lot of folks in our audience, I was talking to my team members about this, you know, health challenges, they come up more and more and more. And uh, some of the things I've just discovered were like so many of the things where it's like, why is this happening? I'm eating all the, again, checking all the right boxes. What I was unconscious of was just the levels of stress that had built up over the years. And I think, you know, this might be a little bit of an aside, but you can redirect me. Um, just so much glorification about 24 seven hustle culture and entrepreneurship and like this push to go all the time. And I remember, cause I started my business pre-social media. I remember how joyful it was before there were these expectations, societal demands to kind of push out, create 24-7, engage, always be there. And I don't think I um, realized what a toll it had taken on me. Yeah. It, it brings up this idea that I have been hovering over for the last year or two years, um, which is, I, I suppose, a topic that I've had to get clear about over this time, which is whether bigger is always better 
And, you know, we seem to be a culture that is always growth minded and chasing scale. And the companies that we admire and the business leaders that we see in our feeds, you know, they're, they've all scaled, you know, we, you know, we only care about national politics and we only have national TV. And, you know, we, we've forgotten in many ways about the things that are most apparent day to day in our life, which are things that are local, that are right around us that we can touch and feel on a quotidian basis. So I wonder where you've landed um, around scale and growth and whether bigger is better. I love this conversation so much because for years, and I've talked about this in my work and we talk about this in um, with our B-schoolers, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but I've always been of the firm belief that bigger is not actually better. So it's been interesting for me and it's become more clear for me now than even years ago. But so I've been courted several times with, you know, folks saying, hey, we've been keeping an eye on you. We like, we can invest, we can take you from, you know, X amount that you're doing to go here. And Jeff, I've always been someone who I live my life by intuition by that small inner voice and by how things feel in my body. And I'm very suspect because I know this thing. I know this brain. And I know even when things look good on paper, if something is sending red alarm bells inside my body, it is a no. It's like a big no. And I've always said no to things because I'm like, it doesn't feel right to me. And I think that growth for growth's sake is a cultural sickness that we need to heal from. There was a woman that I actually interviewed on my show, Marie TV. I don't know if you've run across her work yet, but you would love it. I think your audience would love her too. Kate Rayworth. She is a British economist who uh, is absolutely, she's got an amazing TED talk and she is the creator of an entire philosophy and economic model called Donut Economics. So you are familiar with that. I see that smile on your face. And I remember coming across her work and just looking at the notion of, gosh, you know, for how many years have we looked at this kind of hockey stick curve of growth as an economic indicator of vitality, right? And success and aliveness. And this is what we're going after. But it's like, where does that hockey stick end? And for us as humans, growth just for growth's sake and not unpacking why and going, well, what impact is all of this having on a very personal level? What does my life look like and feel like? Am I so exhausted and overwhelmed and I can't even turn my brain off from work? Like that's not living. That's exhausting. And then when we look at the societal impacts of this nonstop pressure and craving and yearning for growth and endless growth, you know, you look at the environmental impacts, you, there's just, it's the trickle down is impossible to ignore. And so I love Kate's notion of rather than endless growth, what about we strive for thriving, Mm. which changes the entire goal? What does thriving look like? When is enough enough? And what do I want the whole of my world to look like? And so in our company, you know, I think at one point we were probably over 45 people, to be honest with you. And for me at that moment, it was too much. It was too much. Now we're leaner and it feels so much more aligned 
with my soul and where I want to be. And I think that one of the most important things we can do, especially in the conversation for entrepreneurship, is teach people that there are so many different ways to quote unquote be successful. And you have to define that for yourself. And bigger is not always better. I think simplicity is an enormous emotion and energy that our world is moving towards. And that comes down to being courageous enough to say, I don't want to dominate the world. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And I don't want to necessarily have a gajillion people unless that feels aligned with your soul. And that really feels true. But it takes a lot of courage and discernment, I believe, to push up against what everyone tells you you should want and to have the bravery to define success for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have these societal metrics like the Dow Jones Industrial Average or the GDP, which don't always reflect the true well-being of society. That's right. So you can apply that to your own personal life and actually find metrics that are more reflective of your own personal thriving. Um, And so, I mean, you can literally write these down and rank them. Like, how important is it to me in my life to be aligning my work with my highest principles? How important is that? How important is it for me to work from home and set my own hours? How important is it for me to make money or to have impact? And I think, you know, really putting yourself through that process can create a lot of clarity within how you spend your time and attention every single day. Yes. <laughs> and, and we can get into um, it's defining, know, some of that. Yeah. It's defining the metrics that matter, right? Not the vanity right. metrics. And I remember I've had conversations. I've had people that are, you know, extremely, let's call them popular on social media. I remember one conversation, someone said to me like, gosh, you're so good at what you do. Why aren't your numbers higher? And I remember it was like one of those kind of weird, I was like, oh, that didn't really feel good. You know what I mean? As a comment. But the truth of the matter is I don't care that much about vanity metrics. Like I care about are my customers extraordinarily happy with what they say yes to? Is my team thriving? How is my health and my love and my relationships? Like how much joy am I in on a daily basis? And all of those questions and answers have jack to do with how many followers I have on friggin' Instagram. I don't give a crap. I care about the quality of our work, that we're reaching the people who we are truly meant to serve, that we're providing extraordinary experiences for them. And like the numbers, you know, we've been in business, Jeff, you and I, both of us, right? We've been in business long enough to know you've got up years and you've got down years. And those things, right? They keep changing. It's never going to be static. It's never going to go up and up and up and up and up and up and never end. That's just not nature. And if you tie your fulfillment, your worth, your happiness to metrics that really don't matter, you are signing up for a life of misery. I think we're at this inflection point. um, And I think this conversation is prescient because I think a lot of people 
are going through these thought processes. I mean, we're yeah. reading a lot about this great resignation right now. And sure. I was looking at some statistics. I think it was 4.5 million people quit their jobs in November. Oof. Now, to be fair, a lot of people are quitting because they're getting higher paying jobs somewhere else and, and hiring in many ways is outpacing quitting because the job market is hot. But I also sense that COVID has really hit the reset button for a lot of people. And people are really taking a step back and figuring out how to align their work, their vocation with their purpose. Yes. So I wonder if you have any comment about where we are kind of socially there. You know, is this a great time to be an entrepreneur, to strike out on your own? And then how do you find the, how do you align your work with purpose every day? And how would you advise people to do that? So taking it from the top, I think that what the kind of past few years of the pandemic has shown so many people was, first of all, uh, something that we've been kind of shouting from the rooftops for well over a decade now is that you don't have to go to an office. <laughs> you can work <laughs> from anywhere, right? That if you right. have... Uh, an ability, and of course, this isn't everyone, but for many of us, if there is a talent, a gift, a skill set that you have with these technological tools that we have and how often that we're using them, there is a very high likelihood, if not 100%, a large portion of what you do can be done virtually, which has freed up people's minds and their hearts and their locations to imagine more freedom and flexibility than we could have ever imagined before. So I think the fact that people got a taste of that, it's very, very hard to go back. Yes. So. I think that is somewhat a piece of it. You know, folks see their pets and their kids in the morning or their parents who are nearby and they're able to have dinner because there's not this commute or all of these different puzzle pieces have been so shifted. It's like the whole puzzle table like basically got tossed, right? And so I think people are rightfully also looking through the lens of understanding in a very visceral sense how fragile this life is and how our time is not guaranteed and saying, I know I want to contribute to the world. I know I have gifts and talents, but I want to use them in a way that doesn't destroy the rest of my ability to enjoy life. And I want to do it in such a way where I feel like I am making a difference, however I can make that. So I think the notion of, is this a good time to be an entrepreneur is a hundred percent yes, because Tagging back to what you said earlier, I think more and more of us are coming to the realization that we want to support our local businesses because we don't want to see them go out of business or people that we know who are starting businesses that are really thinking about not just profits, but they're thinking about the planet. They're thinking about society in a larger, more connected sense. And we want to spend our dollars with the types of businesses who have that higher level of consciousness. And so for anyone listening right now who feels like, oh gosh, I don't know if I have what it takes or you're a big hearted person, I will tell you, I think that the planet, so to speak, are aligning so that more and more businesses, as long as you have a business education, you understand sales and marketing, you understand how to use digital tools to be able to communicate your message effectively, all of the other, what I think in the past were known as soft skills, 
the empathy, the compassion, the purpose, the connection to higher society, societal ideals, those are more important now probably than they've ever been before. And I do not see that trend reversing. I see people wanting to become even more loyal and they're becoming more discerning with their dollars, demanding they understand where the ingredients are coming from. What does the supply chain look like? What does your team look like? How do you treat people? You know, so if you have been desiring having an ability to have full purpose and consciousness expressed through your work, well, starting your own company is one of the best ways to make sure you do that because there's no one else to answer to but you. And I think that the barriers to entry, they keep getting lower and lower. And what I mean by that is, you know, when I started back in, gosh, 2001, we were building websites. Like I had to go barter with one of my dad's friends to get a site HTML coded. You know what I mean? Like it was a big (laughs) deal. Now it's like you can drag and drop stuff on your phone and you can have an app in, I don't know, 20 minutes and people can be buying goods and services from from you almost instantly. If you know how to type, if you know how to email, if you know how to take photos, if you know how to press a button, you can have an entire store ready again in in hours, not weeks, not months, and not years. Yeah. No, the point that you make about the uh, availability of tools and marketing apparatus and distribution, et cetera, social media, um, right there at your fingertips, literally in the palm of your hand is such a liberating and empowering development. But there still is something that is that that stands in the way uh, of people making that jump. Yes. And that is often fear, fear of judgment, fear of failure. So I I want to talk a little bit about how people can go about cultivating the courage and the confidence to pursue one's goals and dreams. This is a great question. And first of all, I want uh, to underscore the fact that Fear is absolutely normal, you know, and especially in the world that we live in. And I have worked with, gosh, we've had over almost 70,000 people go through our program that's called B-School. So I've worked with this particular question and seen it from so many angles over, I think, almost 13 years now. So if you feel like, oh, I'm afraid, I don't know what people will think or what, you know, if I have what it takes, or there's so many other people out there who have done my idea exactly the way I want to do it. What's my, how is it going to be different? All of those different types of fears that can manifest, they're normal. You can just breathe, you can look at them, and you can still move ahead. One of the things that I've found, even in my own life, that really supports me in moving through that fear is taking something that is unknown to you, which is starting a business. What does that mean? How do you do it? What are the actual steps? What do you need to do to make it, uh, give it the best possible chance of success that I possibly can? is you take something that is unknown and you make it known. So if you don't have any education around that, you get education around that. You take something that is unfamiliar and you make it familiar. And when you take something that is unfamiliar and you make it familiar, it becomes less scary. When you put yourself in a community of people who not only have done it, are doing it, or maybe doing it for the third, fourth, or fifth time, all of a sudden, 
it's no longer like, well, what should I do in X, Y, and Z situation? Or have you ever run into this? First of all, you're familiar with it. You're getting educated from people and you have support around you so that when you do hit those inevitable stumbling blocks, you you scrape your knees, you know, you put out something and it doesn't work. You have people to bounce off of and get counsel and perspective from that can redirect you to stay on your path. So I think that one of the best ways to navigate, to mitigate, to manage and move through that fear is to acknowledge that it's there, not make yourself or it wrong, and then take very specific actionable steps to get yourself educated on what it means to be an entrepreneur and to put yourself in a really supportive environment of people who are taking the same kind of risks. And they don't necessarily have to be in the same business or the same industry or same vertical, but they understand what it means to create an irresistible offer. They understand what it means to use digital tools like building an email list and how do you make um, your conversions increase, whether it's email conversions or buying conversions and how do you use all these different tools. And so putting yourself, I think, in that environment before long, it's no longer an unknown and you get into the momentum of the practice. And once you're in the momentum of the practice of being an entrepreneur and you have a support system around you, it's like you're speaking a new language. You're like, oh, I got this. It becomes um, even an unconscious skill set that you just get better at and better at over time. Yeah, it, it's funny. I, I never went to official business school. Me neither. But I, I sat <laughs> in enough fancy board meetings, nodding my head and smiling. Until yep. eventually I understood what all the words meant, you know? That's right. And, and I asked questions. Um, and of course, you know, this is the great service that you provide with, with B-School is that you give this safe um, environment, this capsule that allows people to be vulnerable and to learn and to take baby steps and ask questions and, like you say, develop familiarity. And I'll also add... That, that sometimes fear just needs actually a reframing because mm. if you really witness the sensation of anxiety, of what that truly feels like, the electricity in your body, the butterflies in your stomach, the tightness maybe that you feel in your throat, however your body manifests that feeling, that sensation is so similar to excitement. Yes. And oftentimes the only difference between anxiety and excitement is the valence that we assign to the sensation itself. So oftentimes, like for example, I have a bit of a phobia of public speaking. I have a fear and it's generally tied to my ego because I'm worried about what will people think. Okay. And I have all these tools, but still, you know, before I have to get up on a stage or something, I'll feel that sensation. And then I'll just literally try to witness that sensation and say, God, this feels a tremendous amount like excitement. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and I think, you know, if you're considering starting a business or considering even taking that first step of enrolling in B-School, you know, really reframing or reassigning the valence of something that could be anxiety to something that is incredibly exciting is, uh, I think, a really great tool. 
And then my other tool that I often rely on, you know, especially as it pertains to, um, you know, public speaking or something that I have, you know, uneasiness around is, you know, just ask a lot of questions. You know, like you said, you know, the more familiar you become with a certain environment, uh, you know, the less anxious that you're going to be about it. I have a friend named um, uh, Chip Conley, and he wrote a book called Emotional Equations, which is sort of like, like breaks down emotions for dumb dudes that like, like math, you know? <laughs> um, and he would say that anxiety equals uncertainty times powerlessness. So if you can decrease your uncertainty in that equation, then by extension, your anxiety just goes down. So this is it, you know, equip yourself with the knowledge uh, and the tools, ask questions from people that know more about it than you do. And of course, that's a lot of what business school or B school provides. So um, yeah, yeah. I want to echo, I, I think one of the best sayings I've ever heard, I certainly didn't make this up, but I use it, is um, fear is just excitement with the brakes on. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> the moment you lift your foot off that brake and you move into action, and just to give another button to where we started earlier too, which was around clarity, a lot of people have always asked me like, well, how do I know? How do I know if I have the right idea? How do I know if, if I'm meant to do this? And I've always shared something that I live my life by and I've never seen it not work. Clarity comes from engagement, not thought. Clarity comes from engagement, not thought. If you can take a step towards a particular direction and treat it as an experiment, you're looking for feedback, internal feedback from your body, external feedback. How do you like this? Does this feel right? You're going to get so much information that is not available if you had just sat and read a book thought about it on your couch, even had conversations with your best friend. If you get into a class, sign up to be a volunteer, go do something that is action-oriented, that clarity is going to come. And I've seen this so many times in my life where I've tortured myself thinking about something for months, if not years. And then I finally pick up the phone. I make an appointment. I go right. do something. I'm like, oh, I know. Yes. This is very yeah. clear to me. So yeah. I think those two what things does a, are important. Yeah. What does a microbiologist do when they want to test a hypothesis? Well, they run an experiment. They don't just That's have right. the conclusion. Right. You know, they run an experiment and they you know, modulate their hypothesis through reasoning and induction and deduction, and then they come up with the conclusion. And then they're also open to new information that might change that conclusion. And so right. this is really what you need to do. You need to run an experiment on yourself and yes. learn and be open and then, you know, and then come to certain conclusions and then be open to change. So, I'll say this yeah. really fast just to sneak this one because I think it's relevant if someone out there is listening right now going, yeah, but wait, I think I have an idea that could be a business, but how do I know and how do I validate it without spending a ton of money or making a fool out of myself or putting my family right. at risk? There's actually a program within B-School that's called Start the Right Business that helps people validate their idea, that walks people through exactly how to test without risking a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of energy so that step by step, you can start to 
put that idea in the water, so to speak, and really start to get that feedback before you go, okay, I'm quitting my job and I'm, you know, we're going to pack up the whole family and we're doing, you don't have to do any of that, especially if you're more risk averse. So if you do decide to join us for B-School and you're one of those people that goes, yeah, but I don't, I don't want to go whole hog in. How can I do this experiment in a way that really works for my life to not put things at risk? We've got you covered. Yeah. I've landed recently on a definition of courage that is a little slightly different than I think most people think of, think of it, um, which is the ability to confront and understand fear and act in a manner that is neither cowardly nor reckless. So in a way, this is a more wise version of courage uh, because you want to be able to step forth and be vulnerable and act rightly in the face of opposition and sacrifice yourself for the greater good, all of these other definitions of courage, which are certainly applicable, but you don't want to be reckless. And so I think it's really finding that balance and using tools to examine kind of what your risk tolerance is and, you know, how much courage the situation actually, you know, properly asks for. Yeah. And giving yourself the opportunity to understand that there are strategic, wise steps that you can take that do not put your family at risk or you at risk. And especially in the game of entrepreneurship, I think oftentimes we kind of hear these glorified stories of, you know, people burning the ships behind them and they didn't have any food to eat. And it was like the last moment they were going to be evicted. And then they finally got a million dollars in sales. And from my experience, those stories are often so rare. Oftentimes, some of the most successful, and I use bunny ears with that, meaning successful Mm. in that own person's definition of success and sustainable businesses, there is a long kind of steady churn over time. And you can take steps. And and I mean, you know, I had side jobs for seven years when I started my business until I was confident enough both financially and emotionally to go all in on what has now been my business. But everyone has a unique path and there's not one right way to do it. And I think that it is about having the maturity, the wisdom and the tools to be able to take those courageous steps in a way that aligns with your life, your lifestyle and your risk tolerance. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about productivity. Yes. Um, and its relationship to time and our perception of time and attention. So I've often said that all we have as humans at our disposal are those two treasured items, time and attention. And good proof of that is the fact that everyone is competing for those two things all the time. All the time. Uh, And of course, we're living in a moment where our attention can be so easily distracted because we have 500 different devices pinging and dinging and sending us notifications and texts and emails and slacks. So on the one hand, and then you pair that with the sense of scarcity that we sense about time. So in some ways, these topics are conjoined and in some ways we can talk about them separately. But first, I wonder how you cultivate the ability 
for focused attention and focused concentration? Yes. So I think, um, as I mentioned before, a really wonderful gift is just a byproduct of luck was that I remember very distinctly what it was like to start and grow a business in like the late 90s and early 2000s. This was prior to iPhones, prior to streaming services, prior to social media at all. And I can remember like it was yesterday, how much more spaciousness I felt in my life. The fact that I could choreograph four or five dance classes, fitness classes a week, have coaching clients, be working on a book, bartend, wait tables, teach dance. Like it was so, I was like, what? And granted, you know, I was in my 20s. So there's a level of energy there, right? And enthusiasm that, that can tend to come when you're in that phase of life. But I think for me, one of the things that I have trained myself to do, because I do have that ADHD brain, is I really set myself up to win. Um, I'm mm. not a person who lives on my phone a lot. Everything is defaulted to be in do not disturb silent mode or just doesn't exist on my phone. I don't know if I can necessarily show you this. Let me see if I can. So this is my home screen on my phone. There's no apps on it at all. There's just the phone camera icon because I'm, you know, I often like to take little pictures of whether it's Josh or my pup or, you know, nature or something like that. But um, I've done my best to set up my life so that interruptions just don't happen. You know, like my relationship uh, with my partner, we have pretty much a meeting every morning where we go through kind of what the day looks like, especially in this world where most of us are working from home with our families and we've got lots of incoming and outgoing. And so we really make it point to respect each other's cognitive uh, ability to get our best work done so that when we're done with work or even in between that, we can be really present for each other. So it's a constant practice for me. It's also a constant practice for me to live and exist in a mental and emotional space of time abundance. Mm -hmm. I think that the world is always trying to push us that there's never enough time, you know? And I've certainly lived in that place that I call time stress for many years where I'm feeling constantly behind and overwhelmed and no matter how hard I work or how long I go or how much I push, it's just never enough. And I did that for so long, kind of like the top of our conversation when I was like, I didn't even realize how much I was doing that. I thought I was just being hyper-productive and a super ambitious person. But what I didn't realize is that I was living under this constant feeling that there wasn't enough time. And that was a part of what was contributing to that cortisol bath that I was living in. And yeah. so um, I started to recognize actually after the surgery, I was like, wait a minute, this is a choice. This is not a, a must reality that I need to exist in. There's this whole other world where you're not looking at the clock. You're not obsessive about time. You're not trying to control every minute of every day. You're not living trying to squeeze another thing in so you're just exhausted at the end of the day and you have to wake up and do the whole thing all over again. And so when I began to realize that there was a whole other paradigm that I could exist in, it was very, very freeing. And then I started to just notice and try and catch all of the addictions that I had to living in a space of time stress. And so it's a constant practice for me, but it gets easier over time. Yeah. You also mentioned that you have a regular meditation practice. Uh, yes. How does that influence your ability to focus for Ugh. 
periods of time? Jeff, it is game changing. It has been a game changer. And um, I remember when I first learned to meditate when I was 17, I had this incredible teacher in college who taught a course based on Deepak Chopra's Seven Spiritual Laws of Success. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a bunch of us. And I was 17 at the time. And it was like, what is meditation? I had no idea what it was. And so it has been instrumental for me over the years. I can tell the difference the days that I meditate and the days that I do not. The days that I meditate, time honestly expands. It feels like I have more of it. And you know what I've discovered recently? I used to have a practice where it was about 20 minutes a day, like in the morning, and that was pretty steady. You know, every once in a while I'd fall off, but it was it was there for a while. What I've realized more recently is actually the more time that I meditate, and sometimes that's now like an hour, it can be an hour and a half, which I know sounds like, wait, what? Jeff, I have more time and space. It is the most twisted, beautiful, paradoxical thing where I feel like my brain is actually in sync with my body and my soul. I feel like I'm able to articulate my thoughts more clearly. I have more patience. I feel like I'm in better touch with my intuition. I'm better able to discern what's worth my time, what's not worth my time. I'm not operating out of unconscious programs where you get uncomfortable and you click your phone to go check your email instinctively, even though you don't even care and you're not expecting anything. Right. So those are some of the benefits that I've found. And especially with a brain that can operate differently, it has been a savior for me. It has been a way for me to really train myself to get the best out of who I am and to really be here for my life. Like not pretending I'm here, but really, really here. Yeah. I think you said the key word for me, which is training, because that's really what it is. Uh, And that's why it's a practice. Um, and not a product per se. It's uh, something that you do every day. Um, David G, who's a great meditation teacher, uh, said, well, you don't um, brush your teeth for three hours the day before you go to the dentist and (laughs) and hope for results. Um, So it's something that you really can just do as a practice even if you're just doing it three or four or five minutes a day. Completely. And, you know, a very simple meditation, a meditation that I practice quite a bit is a Buddhist meditation called Vipassana. And it's really so simple. It's just literally bringing your attention back to your breath. And it, it's not about the cessation of thoughts necessarily. It's just about witnessing thoughts as they arise and subside in consciousness and then just coming back to your breath. And really what that is, is a training because any time that you, and then it begins to punctuate your life, your general life. So if you sit down to write, for example, and your mind wanders for a moment or some other thought arises in consciousness, maybe a task or a chore that you have to do, or you have to pick up your kids, you can, okay, you can witness that thought arise and subside and come back to your writing and your focus and your creative priorities and your work um, in, instead of getting distracted. And like you say, check your email for no particular reason, because the 
there is this mythology that we can multitask, really. It's just we're parallel processing. So the degradation in your work, if you distra- get distracted and go to your email or go to a notification and then try to come back to your priority, which is writing, for example, it takes you that much time to get back to where you were. So really what you're talking about in terms of time dilation is absolutely true because the more that you can actually be focused and train yourself to be focused, the more time you actually have within that priority or within that creative work. And so I'm right with you. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's true both in a linear sense, because they've said some studies have put it as, you know, if you have an interruption or a distraction from a cognitive space, it takes you anywhere between 20 and 26 minutes to kind of get back in the zone. Mm. So there's that lens and frame. I also think there's a whole other paradigm of experience that's not necessarily rooted in a linear experience of time where you're living into, oh my goodness, this day feels like it was three times as long, even outside of that, those gains that we're getting if we tracked it minute by minute. It's almost as if, you know, I've spent some time, um, I need to spend even more time in (laughs) Italy and somehow, right, the days, it's like I fit three days into one and there's not an ounce of exhaustion. It's just like it really does feel like time expands. So I think those two things are true. And the other thing I want to add on as a note, and I've done a lot of research on this, and people know this to be true intuitively. These things, the dings and the rings, and how it has behaviorally trained us, it's downgrading our brains. It's downgrading our ability to focus. It's creating such chaos in our neurocircuitry that it is really like we are training ourselves to be not only mediocre, but highly dysfunctional from a cognitive and emotional basis. Mm. And so meditation is such an incredible tool to not only counteract and begin to heal some of that, but begin to witness those addictive patterns and addictions in such a way that you no longer get pulled to do them. So it's not just balancing it out of like, okay, I've done this, now I need to do that to try and get to homeostasis. It's really, for me, been a methodology to separate myself from that behavior um, wholesale. Yeah, I'm in. I mean, also just I would say the greatest projects that I've ever engaged in require long wave thinking. And as you know, I reminisce about some of the things that I'm most proud of, they're generally had their seeds in some sort of extended introversion or extended long wave thought pattern where I was able to actually really process and get to the essence of a thought and then be able to build that thought out in a multilinear, nuanced, complicated way. And, you know, that simply requires focused concentration. Yes. And so, you know, this is part of going to the mental gym is, you know, devoting that time every day to uh, to practicing non-distraction. And then, of course, it has myriad other benefits, which we can <laughs> spend many episodes talking about. It's a very different way to experience what it's like to be alive. But um, but in terms of just 
your relationship to time and focus. Um, it is among the best things that you can possibly do. So let, let's talk a little bit about leadership um, because this is a topic that uh, I think that we both have, uh, you know, painted by numbers with. Um, and in some ways, I mean, I'll speak for myself, I've had to sort of walk backwards <laughs> into, um, you know, trying to be a good leader, um, led a, a number of companies and made plenty of mistakes. But uh, but I think I've picked up a bit of wisdom along the way. So I wonder, just in your experience, um, what have you found to be the essential qualities of superlative leadership? I think clarity of vision is one of the most important things, is being able to articulate not only, you know, what you're doing, but why you know, what is the vision for the organization or the project? Um, why does it matter? Who does it matter to? Setting the clear expectations for what success looks like. You know, as a CEO and as someone who just adores collaborative environments, and I love working on a team, making sure that we're all on the same page and that people understand what success looks like and they can ask questions. And, you know, sometimes the question they ask like, wow, I'm not clear about that. Let's get clear. Mm. I think that those kinds of conversations are not only helpful and inspiring, but can also expand the vision of whatever that you're doing. Um, I think this is another piece of it, which kind of sounds, may sound strange, but um, it's been a big lesson for me is choosing the right people to lead. Mm. And having the courage to tell the truth about when folks either on your team may no longer be the right people to be on your team, or if you're in the hiring process and you really just want a warm body in there because, you know, there's the pressure of deadlines and things that have to get done, but the deeper voice in you knows that the person is not the right fit. I think uh, an excellent quality of leadership is 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 really training yourself to be honest and truthful about who you're meant to lead. And then having frank conversations about when things are working and when things are not working in such a way where you're not pointing fingers, you're not necessarily making people wrong, but you're pointing out, you know, what is not working about a situation what are possibilities for resolution, where you want to see it go, and then opening it up to hear the other person's perspective and see what their lens on it is. And over the years, I've had some really interesting unfoldings where I thought a particular person that I was leading was maybe no longer supposed to be with us. And then lo and behold, an honest conversation, you discover so much and that person winds up rising up to be a star. And on the flip side, you know, holding an idea of who someone was and not seeing who they've become and recognizing it's time for them to move on to their next adventure. So I think so much of it is the emotional intelligence piece and the communication piece and being willing to step in and have those sometimes uncomfortable conversations that set everyone free. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one one thing that you said about 
um, fluency or mission fluency or clarity is so important. And, um, and it, it ends up being, um, I think something that really can decentralize decision making and give people a lot of empowerment in, in their own seat and in their own responsibility. Because if, if as a leader, you can continually underscore mission fluency or clarity around a particular set of KPI or goals, then what you're really doing is giving the lens through which people can make decisions. And, and it allows you then to let go. Yes. And to be honest, this is a lesson that I had to learn somewhat the hard way, but you know, for years, I always felt like I needed to make every big decision. And, 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 you know, I had to be in every meeting and I always had to raise my hand and, you know, be a smart voice in the room, et cetera. Absolutely. But the more that I think you can empower people with clarity and fluency, the more that you can then step back and let go and empower your team. And uh, what I've found is that once you establish that culture of trust and empowerment, people generally, if you have the right people, like you say, they generally step up. And then all of a sudden you have this incredible self-managed team. And that gives you then the time and the space to be, you know, creative and think of new ideas and 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 just innovate. Innovate. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, so this is uh, but of course, this is something that <laughs> it took me 15 years of like stepping oh. in the wrong buckets. <laughs> Man, I have, I think it's also too, like, you know, keeping control over everything. Uh, for me, it was so much based, it was out of fear. It was yeah. so much out of fear and, you know, not wanting to lose this thing that I've worked so hard to build and, you know, all of those things. And I think trust issues are, they're very big. And I think one of the things that I've learned um, in my own journey is to create just like when we talked about this notion of clarity comes from engagement, not thought, and that there are ways to kind of step into something without huge risk. I've seen that similarly um, in working with teams where you um, can create opportunities for people to have that autonomy, exercise judgment, and then look at it in such a way where if they made a call that necessarily wouldn't be the one that you would have had advised or say something goes off the rails, it's not a catastrophic mistake, so to speak. There's incredible lessons and, okay, great. Well, it didn't take everything down. So what can we do differently next time? So I think devising ways, especially when you have new team members and the trust just isn't there yet because it's too new of a relationship to create these projects or opportunities so that you don't give someone so much leeway that again, they weren't equipped to succeed. So you're kind of setting them up to fail. Um, but that's those are those great opportunities to help people develop their own decision-making abilities, discernment, judgment in a way where you're like, eh, you know what, if it screws up, what's the worst thing that can happen? You know, we can survive. Yeah. And there's nothing more gratifying than a great deal coming together that you had nothing to do with. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. You know, I've gotten super into Eastern religions over the last couple of years. And uh, more and more, I seem to be strangely integrating the lessons of the Tao Te Ching into my podcasts. But the, the Tao is the sort of seminal um, writing on, on Taoism. 
and it actually has uh and it's 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 actually a book that it has a lot of guidance for leadership and there's this one verse in the Tao that says if you don't trust the people you make them untrustworthy <laughs> oh and uh there, and then i think this is the 17th verse of the Tao. the the last little bit talks about the great master um leader and i think it says the master doesn't talk he acts when his work is done the people say amazing we did it all by ourselves <laughs> <laughs> so in a way that's been the great lesson is like the more that in some ways you make yourself an invisible and, and humble leader and you're yes. there you're the tip of the spear you're willing to take the responsibility when the responsibility needs to be taken but um but you don't always necessarily have to be the one in well you know raising your hand and being the smartest person in the room all the time i'll tell you it has been such a relief for me in uh, most recent years like i, I love how much smarter <laughs> my team has been in so many things you know and and totally. what's great about that too is that we've gotten to know each other over time where they know the areas where i'm dangerously good so they're like this is where we need your eyeballs. And then I know the areas where it's like, nope, this is in your this is in your park. And then that synergy and that collaboration becomes so enlivening because everyone is contributing their best gifts and you get to kind of slide the pieces over for the people where you're like, that's their genius zone, that's their genius zone. And that's when that symphony happens. And it is so incredibly satisfying. Yeah, it's, there's a little interesting exercise about getting clarity around what you're best at and you kind of poked at it a little bit there and you can and you can actually write this down which is often fun where it's you can write down what do i think i'm best at and then you scribble that down and then you can say what do my friends and colleagues and family <laughs> think that i'm best at <laughs> That's actually, and, I feel like I'm going to do that with my best friends. Like I'm really, I'm going to, we're going to do that. I, I have a feeling I know what they're going to say, but I think it'll be really interesting. Well, I think what's actually really interesting is then when you look at the overlap of mm. like, where do I think, what, what are the things, the qualities or attributes that I think I'm best at that my family and my friends also think that I'm best at. And then you look at the overlap and see, uh, and see what gets revealed. Uh, and you can also do it with, you know, what I suck at. Um, so it's yeah, a, well, it's that's a, a fun one. I like that a, too. Yeah, it's a fun. Um, it's a, both a business exercise and a fun, you know, drink a glass of wine around the table with some friends exercise. So love it. So what's uh, what's new? If, if there's anything new about B School this year, I mean, what, how many years have you done this now? I believe this is our thirteenth if I'm wow. not mistaken, which is incredible. wild and amazing. Yeah, yeah almost 70,000, which is incredible. Um, I think that the thing that we're having the most fun with that is fresh um, and different and something we experimented with last year that we're just building on this year is every single week, myself and the mentors are going live for these, we call them like office hours and study halls, where as we're going through the material, people are coming live on Zoom and there's just this incredible opportunity to workshop through the material in real time and the questions that come up and just the connections that happen in the chat and the breakthroughs are just really, really inspiring. 
the content itself and to see people go through this program year after year and, and all of our alums can come back because they come back for free and to watch their growth and how they are making their own rules for how online business should be done and people spending like radically less time on social because they understand the value of other marketing channels like email and being able to do that right. They understand yeah. the value of creating these incredibly optimized funnels and how to convert people. And even folks who, again, they're like, I don't need to have 7 million people on the list. Like they've got smaller audiences, but bigger numbers because they know how to convert better. Um, I think we've just gotten even better at being able to coach people through staying in action. I also think, Jeff, in all honesty, because there's no social component to B-School in terms of like, there's not like a Facebook group. So it's like 24, like, what am I paying? It's we've designed an upgraded B school so that it is so focused on action taking. And the feedback we've received is that people feel so much relief because they come into an environment where there's not things pulling at them. They can have thoughtful, rich conversations about the actual content and how it applies to their business and get incredible answers from myself. And we've got a, a team of mentor coaches who are extraordinary. And so the reporting on just people take online programs and they're just kind of digesting material, which is fine for some subjects. But for this to have the level of hands-on support that we have, I feel like it takes people from, you know, kind of being that little bit of a trepidatious place to like, oh, I got this. Let me report what I just did. Let me come back in and tell you what happened when I sent this or sent that or did this. And so there's a momentum that happens that we haven't really witnessed in any other kind of program. Yeah. Well, it's so exciting. I mean, as you pointed out, the inertia of the office park, we finally broke through that now. Yes. And we're living in this moment where we're acknowledging the things that make life the most worthwhile. And so if you are in this place in your life where you're ready to take a step to get clarity through engagement, uh, I can't imagine a better investment than B-School and a better community of supportive people to be around as you uh, explore kind of what could be the most exciting part of your life. And, um, you know, I, as I think back to how I described you to my daughter in three words, which was, I believe, effusive, empowering entrepreneur, where you've absolutely proven that to be true uh, for a long time. But certainly uh, in this conversation, and you know, I, I know so many people personally, but there's just such a massive community of people that are incredibly grateful for all of the tools and um, the support that you've provided for people for, well, 13 plus years. And so yeah, congratulations. Thank yeah. Thank you so much. And I'll just say before we wrap up, the one thing also that I'm so proud of with B-School is like, you know, I know how scary it can be to take this leap, whether you're just starting out or you've had a business for a while, but you know, you've kind of plateaued and, you know, B-School comes with a satisfaction guarantee. We only want to work with people who there is total alignment between how we teach and what we teach and what we're offering and who they are and who they want to become and where those things line up. So people can rest assured knowing that if they're like, oh, everything feels right about this, but I'm nervous, we've got your back. You know, there's um, everything is listed there. It's very clear, but uh, you don't have to worry about us going anywhere. You know, we've been doing this for a very long time and we're committed fully to our students having the greatest success they possibly can. 
Yeah. Well, the testimonials speak for themselves. And uh, I look forward to breaking bread with you somewhere on a, on a hiking trail Soon. somewhere. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for everyone for listening today. This was incredible. Thank you as always, Marie, to, to be continued. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Marie Forleo. If you sign up for Marie's B-School through Commune, you'll get a free year of Commune membership. Just visit onecommune.com slash Marie for more info. Now, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review, preferably positive. If you're a regular listener, you know how much effort that we all put into the creation of this show. We do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. This is never going to be a show where I spend 15 minutes talking about ads. So if you're looking for a way to really support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. Just check it out for free for 14 days. No strings attached. OneCommune.com slash trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime at JeffGayOneCommune.com. I read every single missive that I receive. I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible, including Jake Lau, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fred, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. <laughs>